This is Cinepunked. This episode, Iceberg, Dead Ahead. The ghost of Titanic has loomed large for 110 years, the greatest luxury liner of its day, the pinnacle of modern engineering, and doomed never to complete its maiden voyage. A collision with an iceberg in the cold of the North Atlantic on the evening of 14 April 1912 resulted in the loss of the ship, and with it, some 1,500 lives. Within days, its story was being told in newspapers, cinema screens and books, the legend often overshadowing the truth. In 1955, the American writer Walter Lord penned his narrative of the events of that fateful night in book form as a night to remember. Based on dozens of eyewitness interviews from survivors, it remains in print to this day. In the winter of 1957, Belfast-born producer William McQuitty and English director Roy Ward Baker assembled a crew at Pinewood Studios and commenced filming their adaptation of Walter Lord's book. Released in July 1958, it connected with audiences all over the world, allowing the general public to experience the disaster in an authentic way. Over 60 years have passed since the film's release, and it is still regarded as the definitive account of the disaster. And yet, in light of James Cameron's fictional Jack and Rose love story of his 1997 film Titanic, A Night to Remember is in danger of slipping into obscurity. In this edition, we're going to refocus the attention on the influential 1950s film. Tonight's team, scrambling for the collapsibles, are science fiction novelist and film theorist, Dr. Rachel Kelly, here playing the part of everyone's favourite rags to riches good time girl, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Hello. Sneaking off at Queenstown is our own Father Brown, Mr. Films and Faith, Neil Sedgwick. Good evening, although I would quite like to be everybody's favourite rags to riches girl (laughs) Too bad, I've claimed it. (laughs) And I guess your unwitting Captain Edward Smith for this evening is played by none other than me, Robert J.E. Simpson. I have to say that might be a a particularly nerdy intro that's lost even on my colleagues. (laughs) One one for the Titanic nerds out there. There's there's one or two listening, I hope. Um, so look, th- th- this seems like a really, really obvious thing for us to do. Uh, we're all from sort of the greater Belfast area. Titanic was a ship that was built in East Belfast, in the Harlem the Wolf shipyards. I know, Neil, this is a shock to you. You've never heard this before. Um, certainly, uh, and also, I think, significantly, now Ben was supposed to be with us tonight. Unfortunately, he's not been able to join us at the last minute. Um, but we're actually also of that generation that were kids when the ship was rediscovered and that whole wave of, of sort of 1980s and 1990s love for the Titanic story kind of came about again. So, like, I wonder if our relationship with this is, is sort of slightly different, but it strikes me that, you know, with our with our own kind of local knowledge and the fact that, I mean, certainly for me at school, they taught us this stuff as well as a local history project. Um, it seems inevitable that Cinepunk should actually cover a Titanic film at some stage. And here we are six years in before we finally get round to one. The 14th of April, 1912. A night to remember. A night when the largest, most luxurious liner of her day was speeding across the North Atlantic on her maiden voyage. No expense had been spared to make this ship a symbol of man's final victory over nature. Her first-class passengers were the very cream of society. The aristocrats from Europe and millionaires homeward bound to America. In the steerage class, everyone enjoyed their own kind of boisterous fun. Then there were the second class passengers and the crew. 
2,208 happy, confident people speeding across a flat, calm sea in a ship that everyone knew was unsinkable. Absolutely unsinkable. The ship was called the Titanic. What did you see? Iceberg, get ahead, sir! Had either of you seen A Night to Remember before this? I had not, but I'd always meant to. Um, and I'm really glad I have seen it now. I am shocked that you have not seen this before this oh, week. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know I know you, you have gaps. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I know there are gaps in the Rachel Cannon, but this, this, this one actually genuinely surprises me. It was on my to-be-watched list. Okay. But unfortunately, my to-be-watched list is more of a kind of a thing in my head than an actual list. So when it comes time to pick a film to watch, I can never remember what films are on that list. So um, I did really want to watch this one. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, it, I, I wish this was the first and only Titanic film I'd ever seen. I feel like um, after this one was made, you know, the entirety of Hollywood should just packed up and gone, that's it, guys. That's all we need to do. Job done. No more Titanic films. We've done it. You've seen James Cameron's film, I take it? Yes. You like, you don't like? Um, well, you're allowed to express an opinion on it. Like that's it's... This is going to sound like a ridiculous thing to say about a film about the Titanic, but it was spoiled for me. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did, I did I did know it sank, but okay. um I didn't know Jack died um until I was chatting to friends and they were like, "Yeah, then he dies at the end." And I was like, "Oh, great. Thanks for that." Spoilers. Um, it's been 25 years <laughs> um, spoiler too he's not real yeah well that's the thing um and you know it's fine and i like it fine i like a disaster movie i mean probably more than the next person i'm prepared to sit through some un inexorable shit because i just love cgi disasters happening and and that all being really sort of high octane and stuff and i, I like that aspect of it i thought that was really gripping but i fail to see why we needed a fictional love story to make us care about the worst maritime disaster in 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 history you know why why do we why do we need these two made-up people to kind of give us an emotional access point it's the titanic sinking let's come back to that because i think it's a valid point in terms of how we talk about a night to remember and what a night to remember is doing particularly in comparison to to cameron's film neil have you seen a night to remember before this week i saw it once uh when i was 12 so hang on let me do quick math 29 (laughs) years ago um so this was part of my first year history class okay in in wallace in lisburn shout out to anybody from wallace listening yo, uh, yo, yo. i did not enjoy your school um, <laughs> you used to kick my school's ass at rugby by the way that's, so it. <laughs> that's a booking we're never getting by the way no i'm sorry um but uh we had to watch it we did titanic covered uh titanic in first year and we had that wonderful day where the TV got wheeled in. Oh, the oh, TV wheeled in day. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. TV got wheeled in, uh, video put on, and we had actual, a, actual video cassette, just actual for any young listeners. Cassette, <laughs> yeah, video cassette slotted in. It sounded like the room was going to shake as it went <laughs> down into the top loader. Um, and 
we sat and watched this because it was a double period um which covered us for the entirety of the movie um or just about i think we whizzed through a few credits just to kind of trim to get us in the the time um but then my my memory of it is that we turned the lights back on at the end of it and the whole room was in tears and all the fellas were trying to like hide it you know and there just everybody was um really upset by uh what unfolded um so that's that i haven't seen it since and okay. uh i put it on uh a couple of nights ago and yeah i, di- I didn't have a lot of kind of memories from it mm-hmm. um in terms of narrative or anything like that but it, yeah i mean it, i have seen it before all those and years ago you've seen the cameron film as well i take it i don't think i ever have you know oh you lucky man you've done your thought well i think i've seen i think i've seen clips and I've oh. seen I've seen memes and stuff like that, flo- like you know, he would have hours of your life you'll never did he get just, back. Did he just try and say memes floating around? Yeah, memes floating around, like literally, you know, he would have fitted on that door, you know, that type of stuff that goes around. Yeah. To um, be fair, I have seen that persuasively argued that it's not about him fitting on it, but it's about uh, surface area and, and and buoyancy and stuff. Shout out to MythBusters who've, who've covered that at length. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I've seen I've seen bits of it, um, and little clips and little sections kind of thrown through the, the artistic work of Celine Dion's video uh, yes. music video back okay. catalog. Um, but no, I, I do remember seeing one scene in it, which I found incredibly sad, which is two old people lying on a bed, just consigned to their fate, mm-hmm. which is very, very moving. Um, but no, I, c- I couldn't honestly say I've sat down with the whole thing. My wife is trying to get, um, our girls to sit down and watch it at the minute for some reason for some reason like before we decided to do this podcast there was this conversation one night of we need to watch titanic and i was like do we <laughs> do we really um but they're so far they're blocking all attempts to watch it have to say no i mean i would have sat i i had somehow managed to not see it for 20 odd years um i was meant to go see it for a date several times in 1997 and somehow didn't manage to get to any one of the outings and then i was just one of those films i thought i'm never seeing this i missed my chance i didn't get to see it in the cinema why would i ever bother watching it and then a few years ago um when titanic started being part of my professional life um i I, my interest is with the film stuff so i went and watched rewatched in most cases a lot of the films but I finally went and picked up Titanic on Blu-ray and I watched it and I've got it in 3D as well. The 3D version wow. of Titanic, which I also have Titanic 2 in 3D, um, which is not. They said it was worth- unthinkable. <laughs> it's, it, uh, that's a whole other podcast. Um, but I mean, so the, there's an added incentive to go and kind of watch this. It's, I, cause I, I quite like 3D stuff. It's, it makes it a bit more, um, a bit more interesting. But I would say that I think it's probably worth watching i mean certainly for me i got enough out of it and ignoring the jack and rose bit which is, is fine but there's a, how it, do you ignore quite, the jack and rose bit though i there because there's so i mean in, in terms of titanic stuff it's fair to say that I'm, I've, I've got a, a bit of an interest in this thing um i have walter lord's book here and i have to remember that i got it's dated inside i got this when i was 10 um, so I have lived with this for 30 years, this story and love this stuff. Um, so for me, it's like all the other bits that actually are drawn from real stories that are in Cameron's mm-hmm. film, the aesthetics of it, like he captures that ship in a way that you don't see anywhere else. Um, 
it's it's a lot of it is fairly accurate. It's just there's the whole love story thing that goes on in the middle of it. But so for those of you who haven't seen Titanic in any version, the basic story is massive, massive ship built in Belfast, and a night to remember covers the story where it goes out to sea. So it starts its journey in Southampton. Uh, it skips the bit where it goes to Cherbourg and then to Queenstown, so France and then Ireland, and then goes off into the Atlantic. Um, and then four days into its first voyage, they unfortunately strike an iceberg and sink. And the film is as much about the events leading up to the striking of the iceberg and how people coped in that two and a half hour window between striking the iceberg and the ship going down. And that's it in a nutshell. I mean, there's not really much more you can say about the plot. I mean, we give it away at the start. We all know the ship sinks. It is a disaster movie, but it is doing something slightly different. I think, I mean, this is a film that is based on eyewitness accounts often and, verbatim and it it allows that to be the story i mean that is all the story that you need to tell ultimately is this ship struck an iceberg and it sank and it was horrendous um and it was a terrible way for a lot of people to die um, and I don't understand why that actually needs to be embellished, why that's not enough of a narrative, because ultimately everybody knows how this story is going to end. Mm. So doing anything sort of frilly or fancy with that story is extraneous, well, surely? When, when producer William McQuitty took this story to get investment for the film, um, and a shout out for since we're all doing old school ties tonight. Shout out to William McQuitty, who's like me, uh, ex pupil of Campbell College in East Belfast. So yay, a school that actually I got more good out of than bad. <laughs> <laughs> and also, occasionally we beat Wallace at rugby, apparently, which is a good thing. I don't know. Um, There's a hierarchy no. of rugby going on here. So I know, but we're also not people who give a shit about rugby. Campbell beats Wallace, which beats Methody. So you know. <laughs> yeah. Um. It's for people from outside Northern Ireland going, what? This really niche reference there. Yeah, it really, um, really doesn't matter. <laughs> so when William McCurdy actually went to try and get investment in the film, they they did say to him that basically there was no star. They wanted a star, but also like nothing happens. It, it's like the ship goes down, like that. that's it. And he couldn't understand why it was that you want to make a story about that. And he had to argue the case that that was the story, that it's about all that other stuff that you don't need. I mean, the ship is the star of the film. It's not about anything else. That's the thing that people are going to see. It was a brand in its own right. Um, so it, it, and it's not one, but this wasn't the first time the Titanic story had been told. It's been told multiple times on screen, even before this point. Um, do you know when the very first film was made about the ship? 1912, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Do you know how quickly after the film went down that it was made? I, I that, no, I'm a bit scared to find out. Twenty eight days. Good grief! Uh, an actress called Dorothea Gibson, who actually had been on the ship and had survived, then relived her trauma, wore wow. the actual dress that she wore on the night, and made a, a fictionalized version. Of her story on board the ship. It's only 10 minutes long. It's now lost. It's a lost film, unfortunately. It's called Saved from the Titanic. But she, she made this short, this, this, this film, and it would have been screened as part of various reels, but it was her fictionalized version of her story. And 
it, I think it also prompted her to relive her trauma to the point where she gave up the film industry after that. She was slightly traumatized by it. Um, but that was how quickly there was interest in it. And I, there was quite a, a flurry in the year or two after in terms of, of, of sort of all the inquests and stuff that went on. And then it kind of ebbs and flows. I mean, there's a version of this film made in the 1920s. It turns up in the old card film Nut Cavalcade. It's a play as a backdrop to that. Um, the Nazis, Goebbels, I, made a I film have, yeah. about this, which is quite good. Is it though? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's a weird kind of thing. He, his, it, but he has a very, it's a very clear propaganda aim with it and about how the Brits are kind of egotistical, money grabbing people and, you know, terrible I, I, engineers. <laughs> basically, you know, and it's all big. It, actually, it's a great one for anyone who's really into their conspiracy theories. <laughs> it fits so well into modern conspiracy theories in terms of like, this is all part of a master plan in order to manipulate the stock exchange. Um, so, I mean, they, they had done that. And in fact, there are, there are a few scenes from the Nazi Titanic that are in this film as stock footage. Um, and then there was a big American production, which again played out, it actually played out a disintegrating love story on board the ship with a couple that are divorcing uh, are kind of thrown into the middle of the Titanic disaster. So, I mean, that idea that there were other uh, sort of, you, you put on other fictions, isn't that unusual? But I think you're right. I mean, it didn't need them. No, it, it, it sort of, it, it baffles me as to why that story isn't considered, generally speaking, enough of an emotional hook. Um, I mean, I, I, what also baffles me is the, the, the obsession in this part of the world with the Titanic. Um, it, it's sort of like, you know, there are two things that we do. We blow stuff up and we sink ships. Um, um, that's what we want to be known for. So <laughs> um, we're going to make museums about them um, because <laughs> that's all we got. You know, <laughs> oh, we've got the Giant's Causeway. That's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Some lovely rolling countryside. Come see that. That's lovely. Um, but but what I, I if you're going to tell the story and I do kind of I really do understand the impetus to tell the story and to try and make sense out of something so awful i mean you know it, it particularly given the the circumstances around you know people got on that i was reading about one uh, survivor um edith russell mm-hmm. um was told that she she tried to insure her her baggage when she got on to loads of stuff like she was a, a fashion designer i think mm-hmm. um coming from paris and um she had loads of really expensive stuff so, so many that she actually hired another berth for them um put them all in there and tried to get insurance to cover it and she was refused insurance because the ship was unsinkable uh, she apparently got the biggest one of the biggest settlements against the the White Star line after the sinking, um, because you know <laughs> clearly that wasn't the case. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is where I, I've got to try and avoid this becoming a Titanic nerd out for <laughs> for an hour because I mean I'm well versed in some of this stuff. Um, <laughs> that's not what we're here to do. But with someone like her, I mean, first of all, like that line about it being unsinkable was never actually said by the White Star line. Um, I mean that's a myth that's one of the myths that have been perpetuated uh, there were various newspaper reports that, that basically said that the safety precautions that were on board made the ship in such a way that it was perceived to be unthinkable 
there was a bit of a caveat amongst that, but it was never the people who actually built the ship that said that. Mm. I believe Andrews sort of was arguing for much greater safety measures to be taken that that were ultimately jettisoned for cost yeah, reasons. I mean, it's 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 sort of alluded to at the end of the film whenever it talks about the changes that were made that basically influence shipping today. But mm. but one of the big things was the number of lifeboats. As far as I can see, she made 14 feet of water in the first 10 minutes after the collision. It's not very fast. She should live another hour and a half. Yes, about that, I think. There must be no panic. No. You'll be careful what you say to the passengers. Of course. How many people are there on board? 2,200 or more. And room in the boats for... How many? 1,200. I don't think the Board of Trade Regulations visualized this situation. Do you? Um, At that time, there was 2,200 people on board Titanic. Titanic wasn't even full. You could have had another thousand people on that ship easily. Uh, they, because of this, the Board of Trade regulations at the time, they only had to have 16 lifeboats, enough provision for about 1,100 people. That's half of the number of people who were on board. That was potentially a third of the number of people that could have been on board. Um, of those, only 700 people saved, just over 700. So there's still space for another 400 people on board those lifeboats. Andrews had wanted to have enough lifeboats there for everybody. Um. And there was a push for it, but it, yeah, it did partly come down to cost at the time. And uh, all those people were involved with it. Ismay was involved with it. Andrews was involved with these conversations. And also there were other things that changed after. I mean, there's a, there's a bit in the film where they make a big deal about the fact that the watertight bulkheads only go up so far. Mm. There were modifications made to the Olympic, the sister ship and the Britannic, which was built after. Uh, both in Belfast and future ships as well, in terms of making sure things like that were were adjusted it's the benefit of hindsight and i think that's one of the things that for me always strikes me about the film i mean i i sat watching this again last night i've seen this film a number of times i know many of the stories about the people who are on board the ship and i find myself welling up mm. you know and there's a point in, yeah. in the, I, I have to agree i mean I, I, for something where you know the story so well um to have that kind of emotional impact i mean i was in tears at the end of it i desperately wanted those people to be okay uh, and those people that we hadn't spent a lot of time getting to know, generally speaking, we were sort of little vignettes, um, uh, little tiny insights into their lives. Um, and the, the the guy who who's, who tells his wife, you know, better wake up the children. The the the, the fairly well off guy, uh, Lucas, he mm. tells his wife, you know, oh, it's 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 totally fine. Just you jump in, knowing that it's the last time he's going to see his wife or his children, knowing that he is effectively sentencing himself to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I I hadn't really registered him up to that point. I know the film, I kind of spent a bit of time with him here and there, but immediately I cared. I was devastated for this man. No, but I can't. Get it looks as though we shall have to forego the drive down to Philadelphia and take the train. I can't leave you here, Robert. Cousin Henry won't mind us being one day late, but he'll draw the line at two. I'm not going, Robert. My dear, I never expected to ask you to obey me, but this is one time you must. It's only a matter of form for you and the children to go first. Everyone here will be quite safe. 
Is that the truth? Certainly it is. And, you know, by the end of it, when the, the steward is cuddling this little lost boy, it's going, mommy will be here soon, mommy will be here soon. I was, I was in bits, in bits, knowing, and even, you know, knowing that, that it was going to happen, mm. robs it of none of its emotional impact whatsoever. Yeah, part of, part of the conversation in our house was, you know, along those same lines, where it's like, if I was in that scenario, could I do that? Could I just very calmly and assuredly go, just get in the boat. Everything yeah. will be okay. I'll see you on the other side. Don't like that. And I think one of the, the, the things about it is the, um, when the realization hits the bulk of the passengers on the boat mm-hmm. and the kind of crush happens, there's something about crushes of crowds and kind of that chaos of humanity that is really quite terrifying mm-hmm. and feels very feels very real um and that that all helps add to the emotional side of it too i think because it is it is genuinely um the kind of and it's not, it's not particularly violent but there, there is a moment where um, somebody says, "No, we will have to get the guns just mm-hmm. in case." Yeah. And at that point, then there's actually like a tonal shift happens in terms of the music, and people become more agitated and things like that that, that noticeably happen in the film. Yeah. Um, and because up until then. It all felt fairly procedural, because um, you do you do see some people getting on the ship and their stories of you know this family from Ireland they're all going for a better life. Bagora, Jesus. yeah, there was a you lot know, of that. I was, I was. There's a, a lot of kind of what do the Irish say? Well, none of that. <laughs> none of that. Um, but I just said all the time. There's that. There's that bit where it's like. You, you whiz around that, but a lot of what happens is kind of the procedure of what happens when it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what messages get sent out, how they are communicating with those around them. Mm. Are they being heard? Are they being listened to? In the case of one boat, there's just yeah. two fellas on it going, what should we do something about? I don't know. Nah, it's probably fine. Just leave it. You know, like. Well, that that's, that's the color that. The, the Californian, the ca- yeah. Californian, yeah. Captain, Captain Lord of the Californian tried sued after this. Right. Um, he was not happy. His family actually still are not happy, and you'll see them pop up. It's it. This, we're in, we're talking about this like in Titanic Memorial Month. Um, they pop up every now and then, still complaining about the way that he's represented most of the films. They're still trying to defend his honor. There's all sorts of theories about what else was going on that night. Mm. Um, also, Jay Bruce Ismay's family. Uh, depending on who you speak to, some of them get quite vocal about the way that he was represented in the film. Although actually watching last night, I thought he was, he, he's hes only ever described as the chairman mm. in the film. He's not given his name in order to kind of slightly um, ease any potential for, for defamation. Um, but he was made out to be the scapegoat for this whole thing. And his reputation was sullied in entires. And he was a broken man in the end. Um, I've met 
some of his family, some of his descendants, who, you know, talk quite openly about this and about how that affected him and, and about how the family feel about this as well. Um, so it's it's strange, you know, there's this, this, there were people weren't happy with how they're seen because we, what we also forget is that because this film is very strongly based on people who, people's actual accounts, a lot of these people are identifiable. Now, Roy War Baker amalgamates some of the characters because you can't tell 2,200 stories mm. in, in 120 minutes as hard as you might try. So you, you pick two or three together. And Walter Lord himself said that, you know, this was sort of okay because it served the dramatic purpose and the essence is all still there. It's not that it's not true. It's just you having to, to mold some people together. But because they're all identifiable, it means people feel quite precious about this. We're caught up in an era where everything's about how to behave like you're asking the question, how would we respond in that situation if it was us? And people have very clear ideas about how they feel one should behave. The idea about what makes a gentleman. Well, we're going to put on our finest dinnerware and we're just going to go and smoke cigars and play cards and die. And that's fine. You know, there's a, a different kind of morality at play here. There's a different kind of perception. And when somebody is then you know, accused of having maybe behaved differently possibly because they have ptsd or in shock um then their reputation is sullied Mm. although captain lord i mean from what i've read probably could have done a lot more i mean the fact that they see that ship and they never really try to do anything about it just yeah it's interesting that idea of i think probably as well like the the generational trauma not just Mm. the trauma of the victims as such but the the continuing trauma of the families of of everybody um, involved, like you know, every time there's a memorial month or there is, you know, we're going to make a new Titanic film. Mm. You know, it, it couldn't. It would be impossible not to be, I suppose, triggered in some way, and it may be, it may be positively. Mm-hmm. For those um, who feel like their their stories were well told, but there's bound to be those, as you say, who just have that kind of negative. To, and it never it never escapes the family. Then, do you know? And uh, you wonder, like the toll of that, the weight of that, how heavy that is now, like in twenty twenty two. Like, I mean, I think part of the, the the issue as well with this is that for a lot of the people who survived their lives were rapidly changed as a result of it. Survivor's guilt was very common. There are a number of early deaths that happen after this. Uh, Colonel Archibald Grace, he, he, who's one of the, the, the characters you see in the film. Do you see him in this one? I think you do. do he's, yes, he's, yes, he's, he's in it, passing. yeah. yeah. Uh, he was one of the first people to write a book about the disaster not long after, but he died within a year. I mean, he wasn't long for the world himself. Um, there was a number of suicides associated with survivors of Titanic as well. And families, and then, you know, you've already alluded to the court cases that went on and people trying to get compensation. Like, why Starline cut off pay for their employees the second the ship went down? Right. I mean, like, that was their attitude, was that the minute you were ceased to be an employee of the White Star Line, the minute the ship sank. And you didn't get a wage after that. There were instances of people who had children and dependents that had to go through the courts in order to prove that they actually were dependents. I mean, it it these are the other stories that have been told in other formats. Um, 
but are part and parcel of that. I mean, it's a very emotive thing. Every story you want on the planet exists within the Titanic. It's it's a city. It's a, it's, I mean, it's described as something that's like a city. And all those kind of, of conflicts are there. Right, 80. Right, show the way to get out! Please. There's room in the boat, I thought. Women and children only. I think one of the things that, that, I mean, you sort of almost alluded to, you mentioned the music. For the most part of the film, I don't know if you even realised, there's no music. It's it, There's no score apart from whenever the absolute minutes are... And most of it seems to be in the third class, the actual bits of scoring. I have not noticed that at all, actually. Oh. I, I, I get it. I mean, this, and it, actually, when you say that, I'm both surprised and not surprised at all. Because the film does not really, except in a few fairly noticeable in- instances, the film does not attempt any kind of, for want of a better word, cheap emotional manipulation. Mm-hmm. And I think that when Neil talks about the procedural aspect of it, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Um, and it all just inexorably sort of spirals towards disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that kind of clinical detachment from you know sort of overt histrionics and also you know they the kind of they the attempt to portray the emotional um attitudes of the time as well mm-hmm. it it presents it very starkly and it just allows the horror to speak for itself mm-hmm. really i mean when you're seeing um so the dispassionately um, we cut to the California where the two guys are going, why is that ship firing rockets? Mm-hmm. Probably nothing. Oh, they're still firing rockets. Probably nothing. Oh, it's looking very low on the, the horizon. Oh, that's the curvature of the earth. And you're screaming internally going, it is sinking. They're all dying. Why don't you know what a distress flare looks like? Um, but because there's no effort to go da, 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 this is terrible imagine how terrible it would be it's just presented uh, that's worse than than sort of <laughs> you know the uh, an attempt to to persuade you to have an emotional reaction well mate, we, we we were talking about um battleship potemkin and eisenstein's theories and montage re- on, on the show recently oh were you we were Rachel. If you ever listen back to any of our podcast episodes, you'll find this out. <laughs> Rachel don't do for Temkin. Um But I mean, when you think about that, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that essentially what we're ha- what's happening here is is also a montage. You're not being, you know, you, it, it's the juxtapositions of image that are creating our kind of sense of morality and opinion. They're, it's not asking us to judge for the most part what happened. It's not asking us, it's not telling us that we should feel this way about something. Mm-hmm. I think the lack of scoring for the film, um, apart from like, oh my gosh, everything's going to shit kind of scoring. You know, we're not, we don't see Jay Bruce's me and suddenly we get like a, you know, he's not presented as the villain. You know, it's not like we see him, we sort of see him in light of how he reacts with somebody else. We don't see Lightholer as a kind of heroic kind of fanfare whenever he arrives on screen. We're not manipulated in that way. We're not given little insights into into other stuff. We just literally see what their stuff is. And again, if you read the book, 
so much of the book is straight there on the screen. It's literally what the eyewitnesses said happened is what you're showing. We're not asked to question whether or not this is true. We're just like, this is what they say happened. This is probably what, what actually went down. And you realize as well, because we're getting all these snap because the eyewitnesses themselves are providing snapshots to the evening. In a way, that's kind of why this has to be that way, mm. because we can't see everything that goes on. We literally get, you know, as you're darting down a corridor, you know, you happen to to catch Thomas Andrews telling, a, a, you know, the staff to get their life belts on for themselves, but also for everybody else. You know, the, that that's all we need. Stewardess. Yes, sir? Why aren't you wearing your life belt? Well, the passengers mustn't think I'm scared. Let them see you wearing it. Put it on, child. For your own sake, too. Yeah. And that tells us a lot about him. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some editorialising that goes on, too. Because, obviously, there are bits and pieces that we don't really know. Captain Smith's final moments are a very good example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a big part of it. I think that, that I mean, I thought that lack of scoring was, was really, really interesting. Obviously, we've got the band playing their stuff. And we have um, a bit of a jig downstairs. Which is all good crack. <laughs> a lot more Bagora. Yes. I mean, they look like they're having a great time. Yeah. Um, I, all the Irish viewers in the audience are not having a great time <laughs> at that point. We're looking at going seriously. <laughs> Yeah, but again, this is a game where you you know you kind of looking at what the factual realities of the day were. I mean, the Irish weren't in the first class, generally speaking. You know, they're not the first and second class passengers in the way that you know they are the the bulk of the third class passengers. I'm not disputing. You know, I'm not disputing that for a second. We're we talking I'm about also, the racial stereotyping. I'm also not disputing the fact that they're <laughs> like probably the were. They're probably and the Scotsman was we we Tamil Shanter and his. <laughs> Yeah. There, there probably were a few impromptu Kayleys going on down there. I'm I mean, just we, saying that there's, you know, that's not all. You know, it's not just Begora and music no, and I, lusting I, after Polish women. I, agreed. <laughs> to be to be fair, to I mean, Thomas Andrews is is from Cumber. I mean, he's a, he's a Northern Irishman, and he's presented by, by the late Michael Goodliffe, who actually himself committed suicide in 1976, oh uh, very very horribly. Um, but he's he's a Northern Irishman, although the accent doesn't come through at any point. Uh, oh gosh, there was the ship's doctor. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, good, good Northern Irish accent there. I was, uh, I was uh, a genuine Belfast accent. You uh, know, uh, do you know how I knew it was genuine? Because he never once said Begora. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Doc. Hello, Lights. What's the matter? Somebody ill? I'm on an errand of mercy. Oh, hope she's not too young for you. Oh, I've got an evil mind. Come in. Hello, Doc. What can I do for you? You can stop working on this grand ship of yours and have a nightcap. Well, I got one here. This is sound medical advice I'm giving you. You know, so, I mean, they do exist within the film. I mean, like, w- there is an authenticity. Also, you'd hope that William McQuitty, as a Belfast man, may actually have wanted to make sure that we were 
properly represented, but I guess it's it's the need to think. We also don't see anyone of color in the film. No. There were people of color on board Titanic. Right. Um, we do get a little glimpse of somebody who's a non-English speaker. Again, there were com- people from all over the world were on board that ship. It wasn't all mm. English-speaking Irish and Americans and English people. Like it was but a lot was, more than that. That was a very definite decision, though, by the the producers and by you know to, to because it was a British film, um, mm. and they wanted to portray the British side. I mean, I know a lot of the well, not a lot, but but many of the American characters were kind of composited in and with with sort of other characters that were english to give more english feel some of the american characters were were left out completely i think some of the american characters were turned english as well weren't they um quite probably yeah so i know i do remember reading that that was a deliberate decision um because it was a british film and they wanted to make a british film with which which kind of presented it as a british story well, I, mean, I, I guess you've got a class thing too. It's very easy to play it with. I mean, the coding that still exists today. You know, the the British played the upper class and the aristocracy, and the you know the the possibly ignorant upper class and aristocracy, whereas anybody with an accent is is less than that. Do Do you, you really know. want me to talk about English accents in the nineteen fifties? <laughs> because I can do this. We can we can go down a massive rabbit hole about toga movies and and the linguistic paradigm and and Rachel, we we will find a podcast for you to do a toga movie just so that we can get it all out of your system. I suspect it'll be like five hours long. Of course it will. <laughs> there are no toga movies that are not five hours long. Um, but yes, I mean, obviously, I mean, there 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 are obviously commercial concerns and reasons why they do that. It also strikes me that there's quite an easy narrative facilitation but also the reality is is that the people who had the money were were a lot of them were were english people um a lot of the the you know the lower classes on the ship were of other nationalities were of the regions um so it's not being inauthentic either that was one of the things that i kind of picked up on more this time around was everybody in the upper class and the upper classes seemed to be there for the trip Mm-hmm. Whereas everybody there down below was trying to go to America ultimately to start a better life, you know that kind of American dream yeah. pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting that everybody kind of up up top was just like, "We're having a wonderful time, and we'll go to New York and do some shopping and come home," you know <laughs> that type of thing. And everybody beneath them, um, figuratively and probably literally. <laughs> we're doing it to get away from yeah from home and never go back. Do you know? I was kind of I was kind of struck by that um, when I watched it. I mean, it's it's historically it's it's true. I mean, this was a run of the mill thing. Someone like um, John Jacob Astor, who really I don't think I'm not even sure who he is in the film. He's, he's sort of very very fleetingly i think referenced richest man basically and in, in, in almost on the planet at the time mm. um is coming back from honeymoon in egypt with his young mistress become wife she was she was very very young and pregnant and um like they're literally on holidays <laughs> they are doing the you know the uh the grand tour yeah. Going out, seeing the world, coming home because we got money and we can afford to do it. That that sequence where you see them all trying to get their their possessions back. Let's buy. Be quiet. Too many people. Tessa, yeah, Tessa, please. I must have my jewels. I must have them there in the safe. I've the receipt here to prove it. You know, like 
I think kind of strikes is just the the difference. It's like they're 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 clamoring in a big kind of mob to get their jewels, while downstairs they're just clamoring for their lives. Words going round that the women and children are taking to the boats. You can't go through here. This is not the way to the steerage boat deck. I've told you. Which is the way then? They'll be opening the lower deck ports when the orders are given. Oh, they will, will they? We'll see about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those contrasts are very effective. And yeah, and I think also that the contrast that, that that's making as well is um the the lower class, third class, the steerage recognize the danger. A lot sooner, really, um, and that's also probably because it was wetter. <laughs> yeah, it was wetter, but also they're not being kind of babied by the stewards. I mean, the, the um, in the in sort of the first class, the stewards are knocking gently on the doors. You point out, Neil, going, "Oh, pardon me, if if you wouldn't mind, pop your life jacket on. We'll just go for a little spin around the deck, shall we? Nothing, Nothing to worry about. Everything's fine. There's usually an iceberg sitting right there, sticking out of the hull." That's fine. It's just scenery. Um, and downstairs, they're whacking the door, going, get up and put your life jackets on or you're all going to die. Also, we've locked the doors. You can't get out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, but, but also, I mean, the, I think there's the sense that the, the lower classes, the steerage guys, are more used to the fact that actually the world is a bit shit and that bad things happen all the time and that you're never more than a hair's breadth away from death because you don't have that much control over your life. Um, whereas, you know, in, in sort of the first class um, lives, bad things happen to steerage, but they there's, don't happen in first class. There's an interesting thing going on in that sequence about individualism and collectivism, too, because mm-hmm. everybody down below is going, we need we need to get out of here. And everybody upstairs is going, I need to get my yes. stuff. Mm-hmm. That's a really, really good point. Yeah. Do you know, so there's that's that's in play as well which is interesting in terms of like the societal aspect of it and how they view the circumstance that idea of i need to get my stuff so i'm okay and a whole room of people going we need to get out of here guys you know it's it's very very interesting yeah and working together and yeah yeah, common goal yeah no that's that's a really good point yeah I mean, there's there's so much at play, and so much going on within those relationships and how they're depicted, and I find it fascinating as well, considering the the sort of the social, um, economic backgrounds of some of the people creating this. You know, I don't necessarily know that they were completely au fait with the working classes either. Um, I mean, William McQuitty always sort of interests me. He was a kid, and he actually saw the Titanic mm. being built and launched as a five, six year old. And that was the start of his relationship. But his dad was um, sort of in charge of the Belfast Telegraph. You know, he was from a very well-privileged position in society. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's the man that basically ensures that this film is made. And um, Roy Roy Baker, who I met once doing a documentary for many years ago, I just sat and listened to him for half an hour, an hour, as he told stories. Um, you know, again, these are not, I don't know, I, I just don't get the feeling that they're, you know, they're they're of the people as such. Which is, I'm not not to denigrate their 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 input into this, yeah, um, and even in terms of the survivors, the working class people are not the people who generally survived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was because they were locked in as a sinking ship. I mean, but but what I'm what I'm trying to tease out of that, I guess, is that in spite of the fact that they're the voices that we we don't actually have, 
they are the people that we connect with mm-hmm. with that social conversation you know it, it clearly impacted a lot of people you know they, they they really felt for for the social inequality that existed there there were huge rise about it even in terms of whenever they started recovering bodies they managed to get some like 300 odd bodies from the water in the weeks after this um got a whole new system for identifying bodies that actually we we still use a lot of today in in a disaster situation it was used for same sort of principles for 9-11 and stuff um but basically if they couldn't identify you about half the bodies were put back into the water oh my you know God. They, were, they were recorded possessions were gathered together um but they didn't have space or provisions in order to kind of keep everybody so about half the bodies were then wrapped in linen and put back into the sea well, respectfully, there was a little service for each each one anyway. Um, but one of the things that was observed was, the, the again, in terms of the bodies that were kept and brought to land, it was the rich. It was the upper classes. It was the officers that, that you know, were noticeably brought back to land. So even in death, there was a, a social inequality that existed. Mm. And it was something that was picked up at the time. I mean, the, when this film was made... There were still something like, you know, 80 or 90 survivors of the ship alive. People, you know, this was still living memory. This, this was living memory for people and that trauma. We're looking at it in, in, in 2022, 110 years after the ship went down. There's nobody left. The last person, I think it was 1998, they died. I think it was Milvina Dean was one of the last. Like, like it's been 20 years near enough since well, the last of the survivors is gone. That's more than 20 years, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, was on, I, I need to double check my references in terms of who died last when. Yeah. It's been a while since I last did this as a regular conversation. I used to have off the tip of my head. It's a um, it's a film podcast, not a Mars podcast. Anyway, so we're covered. <laughs> well, it's, it, I only pointed out because I am myself prone to think of 1998 as being five minutes ago. That was last but, week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't even. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, so so you know, I think we're able to look at things slightly differently now from how they did then. I think there was this need to be respectful in a way that maybe you could be a little bit more bolder with your assertions today. Hmm. I I wonder, possibly, but I also wonder if perhaps the emotional mores are very different, um, and uh, there's less. There's less expectation for that kind of stiff upper lip. Hmm. And I just, it strikes me, you know, the, the, the chairman and the character of the chairman, we're not supposed to read that in a positive light. Obviously, no. it's supposed to, we're supposed to read it as cowardice. But I don't think we're ever given enough to really kind of despise him in the film. And I think the, possibly for me, the result is that from a modern perspective, those actions look so perfectly understandable. And goodness knows what any of us would do in the same situation as you say, Neil. I mean, I wouldn't have to think about that. I would be on the lifeboat, most likely, because I'm a woman with kids. Um, so I I don't I wouldn't have to have that thought. But even without that, you know. The, the urge to not drown in sub-zero temperature Atlantic Ocean is a pretty powerful one, surely. And, you know, the, the, the requirement to overwrite that because of social nicety just mm-hmm. seems 
bizarre and 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 so understandable that somebody would find that they couldn't do that as despicable as it is when you know that there are women and children and men and, and people who have been locked underneath um the the, the sinking ships the, the waterline and the sinking ships so that they can't get on the lifeboats but you can't fault somebody for wanting to live or not wanting to die like that mm. it's the i the one of the conversations we had you know that kind of philosophy problem it's the trolley problem mm-hmm you know, it's the uh, I can send the trolley down this way and it kills one person, or I can send it this way and it kills ten people. Like, mm-hmm. what do you actually do? What mm-hmm. is the right answer? Yeah. Um, and I don't think they're necessary. You, you know, I don't think it necessarily is one. I think you get to debate that um, within the context of that problem and within the context of this film. Yeah. But I don't think yeah. there's a satisfactory answer. There because, will still be death. There will still be loss. Exactly. And and there's there's there is that one guy who is the he's he's a seaman, he's a yachtsman. Um, mm-hmm. and he kind of goes, Well, I can sail the ship. Shall I get on? As though he's you know doing it for the good of his or to, or to the good of his heart. Um, and everybody's like, hooray, our hero. I'm just like, okay, yes, no, clearly that is important for him to be on that boat because without him, it's going to be more problematic for people. People, problem. But equally, it's okay if he goes, I should probably be on that boat, but it's not okay for the other guy because we've made a value judgment about how useful a human life is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, no, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not, because clearly, you know, big, rich guy, hugely privileged, um, oh, makes sure that, that that he's on a, a life raft when the underprivileged people just are left to die. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm just, you know, it, th- this kind of assignment of value to lives, I think, is just. <sighs> I, I mean, all like the it. things they do come up within the stories. I mean, in in his instance, I mean, it, it sort of reminds you about the functions that people had. Like literally, the way it, the right way that these things are done is that we have two sailors per ship to kind of like you know keep an eye on things and they're the people that have the control and they are not adequately staffed you've got you've got passengers actually begging for somebody to come on mm-hmm. and again he's the only person that put that, that volunteers his skills mm-hmm. I, I mean i think that's a you know in that instance it's like yes he can see the benefit but there's no way he is not also thinking about the the horribleness about what he's escaping from and about the people that are left behind i mean mm-hmm. i families were torn apart by this you know you didn't know that you were going to see people again at all um i mean there is the lifeboat famously that went off with 12 people including the duff gordons which is in the film we we do see this lifeboat with hardly anyone in it and they you know damn sure they're not going to go back and get anybody else because they'll be swamped Mm -hmm. in this lifeboat that could hold over 40 people and there's only 12 of them. Mm-hmm. And that is totally about privilege. They actually paid um, a reward to the crew members that were on board their little boat uh, afterwards. And there is very definitely a moral judgment that I will still make 110 years later about what they were doing and how wrong that was. Mm-hmm. Because that was a bribe in order to pay off their conscience. Because they did a bad thing and people died because of them. Mm-hmm. I, it's hard not to do that, as as upsetting as that might be to be told that your granddad made a really bad fucking decision and uh, resulted in the, you know, like nobody wants to hear that. Mm. 
But that is also the reality of the situation. Now, whether or not how we'd all behave, I don't know. I've often wondered about this, telling the story for years. I've always wondered what I would do in the moment. Because I don't want to die. And equally, you're in the lifeboat and there's space in the lifeboat. There are so many more people in the water than the lifeboat can take. Mm -hmm. You're in the lifeboat. If all those people try to get into the lifeboat, you're all going to die. That's a situation nobody wants to be. Nobody wants to know what they would do in that situation because I don't think there's anybody, could, any one of us could say with our hands on our hearts, we would definitely go back and risk being capsized by, by panicking, drowning people. Yeah. I'd like to think I would, but I don't, I, I can't say for certain if my kids were on that boat, yeah. I would be saying absolutely not sail away because my children, you know, for me, maybe I would do it, but if it was my children, I, I don't think I could. That was that was our conversation too, where it's like, and that that phrase I think Rachel is key. You'd like to think that you yeah. would, and I like that. That was a phrase that we said last night, uh, watching back. You know, you'd like to think you'd do the right thing, but there, I, I think there is something in everybody that um, self preservation, mm. or to use a more negative term, there is a selfishness yeah. that that comes on that would um, make us want to look out for ourselves, look out for our own family. Again, individualism mm-hmm. versus collectivism, yeah. you know, like it, it, yeah, you'd like to think that you would do the right thing, but I'm not, yeah. like, I, ca- I can't sit here hand on heart and go, yeah, turn that boat around. Let's go and pick up some mm-hmm. people. Like I, I would be an absolute liar yeah. if I, if I was to, to sit here and, and say that's what I would do 100%. I mean, altruism is is one of the greatest things about us and as a species. And it's one of the reasons why ultimately I think we're going to be okay. Um, but equally, it's it's fighting against that absolute you know prime directive, survive, 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 survive. Um, and that's how could we ever say that's not going to override altruism? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's all those reflexes, isn't it? Fight or flight and all that stuff. It's yeah. all, it's all in the mix of all of us, which is, mm. um, which is really, really interesting. Mm. In whatever, whatever the scenario, but this, yeah, that the whole thing was just pretty, um, pretty moving and pretty like, I didn't quite have the same, quite the same emotional reaction watching it back this time as I did mm-hmm. as a twelve-year-old. Um, maybe that's something about a hardening of my own emotional state over the years. I don't know, but the yeah, it still it still makes you have those conversations and those thoughts of yeah, what would what would I do? Yeah, let me t- let me take you down to Titanic Quarter, have a wonder, and I'll tell you some stories about it and see how that gets you. I've been I've been round. I did it. I did a tour. Not with me, you haven't. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Yeah, I, I did a tour um once and uh, stood in the outline outside, and that's yeah. another thing too. The scale of the actual ship itself um, is just something that I don't think we can quite fathom. You know, like no. when you go and stand in that outline, it doesn't give you any concept of height, but it certainly gives you a concept of kind of length and depth of the vessel and what that like. I didn't realize how how huge it was until I was in that outline. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the film, I think that's you know because obviously there's a a model um, that gets used for the actual sinking, which looks um, really well in terms of like for its time, for its era, and all that type mm. of stuff. Like it, it, it really holds up well. Um, yeah, in the film you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's. There was a fair bit of money put into it. Now it's not James Cameron kind of levels of funding that they've got. No. It's it's all British craftsmanship. It's it's like sticking the ship on a pond, yeah. in in Roy Slip. Um, as well as I mean, there's a combination. So there's a bit of a bit of stuff that they shot uh, on on a model, a huge hmm. model that they then burnt afterwards. Um, there's also like a, a sort of a, as life set of one side of the ship where a lot of stuff is played out and and then they also shot some stuff on board a real ship now they did try and film at harlan and wolf and, and to get harlan wolf to give them permission to film on one of the ships and they basically were denied permission at that point the titanic story in belfast was not what it is now uh there was a lot of resistance to having those conversations people felt i think part of that again is this living memory thing the city was trying to bury that association because this had been a shipyard that they were so proud of that was mm. building the, the ships that wore out the ocean as they used to say um as rachel's pointed out to me before it's all right when she left here well, that's it. i mean and that is just the standard response of anybody from northern ireland when the titanic is is it, 110 years on that is what we say she was all right when she left here Oh, I, I, had a, I had a friend who used to say it took 3,000 Irishmen to build Titanic and one Englishman to sink it. Mm. Um, it, the, the, it. I mean, and that does speak to a kind of collective understanding that, you know, probably it's not something to be proud of. Well, I, I think the problem was it, it altered people's perceptions because it was almost like we did this great achievement that then didn't work out so well. Although there was two sister ships that people don't talk about, one of which sailed until 1935 uh, quite happily and could have carried on sailing had it not the, the, the company not decided to, to scuttle it. Um, and it was sailed on by the likes of Cary Grant went off to America on the Olympic whenever he emigrated. Charlie Chaplin travelled on the Olympic. You know, these, these, these sister ships were really important ships. The Britannic served during the First World War and was sank by a, by a torpedo, you know, which, I'm sorry, you can't really fault harlan and wolf for building a ship that won't stand up to a massive explosion (laughs) like that's what they're intended to do um but there was obviously a a, the relationship that our city the city that you know we all know that our country that has had a a love-hate relationship was so long and it's only in the last like 20 years i think as the last of those people have died that were connected with the original ship that were able to look at this afresh that were able to embrace the dark tourism that exists around it um but also to kind of like look at all the stories and go we'll take ownership of it um yeah i mean i do remember as a school child um no you were you were never a school child apparently i was um, in the dim distant past, and it must have been, I suppose, around about the time that the wreckage was discovered. Um, mm. And as you say, I don't recall there being a resurgence of interest in it. I do recall being aware of the Titanic before that, but I was on a school trip to the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum, 
Um, and um, it was the Transport Museum side of it. Things for viewers who are not in, from Northern Ireland are familiar with this marvellous um, part. Of, it's it's a, a living history sort of exhibit just outside Belfast and it is just fantastic and um, it's just absolutely, yeah, they, they so much fun. But um, back then they hadn't quite got the same kind of exciting things that you can clamber on that. There was one room that was devoted to the Titanic and in the middle of the room, they had, um, a, I suppose, a scale model of the ship inside one of those glass square cases. And they had these little figures. And my, in my memory, um, there were 2,200 little figures and 700 of them were kind of sort of greyish and 1,500 of them were black mm. to symbolise how many people died that day. Um, and I, so there's something so stark and something so moving and something so resonant about the simplicity and the devastation of that image. Now, I, my memory could be sort of partially faulty with that, but I, I remember that image and I remember that display. Oh, the display's still there. Is it? Yeah. Is well, it really? It's still there. Okay, because I, I've been there recently and I just seem to have lots of trains. Which is great, yeah, don't get me wrong. It is It is definitely still there. I can send you photographs. Later. And there was a space capsule a few years ago, which was awesome. Um, I mean, look, you want to put it into perspective, there's three of us on this call. Rachel survives. There you go. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, you did let me be Molly Brown. <laughs> <laughs> the unsinkable Molly Brown, I don't know if you ever watched the film, it's really disappointing. The Titanic bit from which she got her name. Um, is like a tiny, tiny bit at the end of the film, oh. and it includes a bit from a night to remember. So, like, that's okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, of the three of us, there's only one of us to survive, and it's statistically, be it's Rachel. likely me. Yeah, yeah, because you're the the woman and children. Yep. You know, we're all we're all, I think, of a relatively similar class, so we're not going to be fighting. You know, it's not like one of us has a class advantage, generally speaking. Although I'd, I'd like to think I I have a class advantage of you. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> well, I, I like. I, I mean, I certainly think I'm the most working class of the three of us, but you know, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean that that's the, that's the reality. And when you get down to those sorts of levels, that one in three is all that survives. I mean that that's a massive, massive thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, like for me, I think like a lot of what we talk about whenever we're talking about films is about analyzing the films and the structures and trying to pick apart how they're working. Sometimes we're looking at stories and about the issues that they provoke. For me, this film does a really good job of conveying the realities of a horrible, horrible situation. Yeah. In a in a fairly detached way that yeah. still leaves you feeling emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a there's a bit of a two. There was there was a conversation in our house again about like, you know, could this happen now? You know, with all mm-hmm. the technology and the things we would use to check for ice or what have you, like, could it actually happen? I think part of the reason it it hits home so much is, yeah, could yeah, yeah, like not not necessarily like, you know, ships do still sink, you know, so yep. there's something very, um, like, there's there's a possibility, you know, um unlikely as it is but like there is a bit of it that has a has a kind of odd 
realism in some ways, if that makes sense. Like a comes down to human error, doesn't it? I mean, ultimately, the reason the Titanic sank was because they didn't, for whatever reason, heed the warnings that they were given about ice. Mm-hmm. They should have, as the other ships in the area did, they should have stopped and yep. not attempted to pass that much ice after dark. Messages for the captain. Oh, very good, Sparks. Would you see you get some right away? Certainly. Excuse me, sir. From the wireless room. Thank you. Excuse me. Ice warnings from steamers ahead of us. Excuse me. Serious? Oh, we shall keep a sharp lookout. Um, so yeah. it's human error. They made a judgment call and it was a bad one. And any that can happen any time. So much of this comes down to human error. There is also a line at the at the start of the film when they're on the train and the guy on the train says, um, you know, they say that she is unsinkable. They say that she, we, man has finally discovered how to conquer nature. And I thought that was a very interesting line because clearly not, you know, you, you know, like those, um, you know, those kind of joked about war movies where it's like, I'm heading home tomorrow to see my sweetheart. And you go, nope, he's no, dead. you're not. Yeah. He's dead before this ends. Yeah. Do you know that, that yeah. type of I'm throat. popping out for a minute. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those kind of lines. But, and I know that's because obviously we know this story. Um, yeah. But I thought, I thought it was just a very interesting line <laughs> in terms of, can you ever really have control over nature? In that sense, I think that's an interesting aspect to it. I mean, the line that's usually used, uh, and I can't remember who it's attributed to, was that it was supposedly said that God himself could not sink the ship. Which is basically like saying, come on, have a go, isn't it? Flag to a bull. Hello. (laughs) Have a go. That's that um, Michael Jordan last dance thing where he says, and I took that personally. I mean, the one thing that I want to kind of just before we kind of wrap this up was was to pick out as well. It's not just about this disaster. There's a point where they start jumping off the ship, and and what you know is a futile gesture. I mean, you've actually heard Thomas Andrews tell people, "Don't jump yeah. off the side of the ship." You will, you know, mm. people got injured and died that way because of the impact of the the icy cold water mm. on them. Let alone the hypothermia that set in pretty darn quickly. Um. But I was talking about, I mean, that, that watching this again makes me think of 9 yeah. 11 and the footage of the jumpers from that. Yeah. Like, and which also involved, you know, that was 3,000 people died in 9 11. We're not, we're, we're talking about comparative numbers in terms of like one mighty edifice, the tallest building in, in, in New York. Mm. There are comparisons that you can draw between the two things. It's just that right now, 9 11 is still within living memory. Mm. It's still probably slightly too uncomfortable. But in, in another 20, 30, 40 years, yeah. It's prime for these kind of films. There's, there's also an interesting thing there about control mm. in terms of this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So do I let it happen or do I control how it happens? Mm-hmm. Which I think is quite an interesting bit of the human psyche too. Because, yeah, don't jump because this will happen. And it's like, well, if I stay here, 
<laughs> yeah. we're, we're pretty assured that this is going to happen so this might actually be quicker to jump at least i know i'll be unconscious and in some ways yeah. might yeah. be more um might be more genteel away is that that's a that's a weird mm. word to use in that context but do you know what i mean like mm. yeah ab- absolutely i if if you would ask me, the the one I always look at is is, is Jockin the Baker. It's a true story. He was the the baker on board the ship, and basically he resigns himself to to dying, so he decides to get drunk, and then at some point during the night gets a change of conscience <laughs> and decides to go up and try and help himself. He spends his time throwing off um, uh, sort of deck chairs and stuff into the water to act as flotation devices, and he ends up riding the ship down into the water. Riding, he's on the back of the ship as it goes under. We don't see that in Night to Remember, mm. but that's where he ends up. He is literally one of the last people on board the ship. And somehow, despite the fact he is pissed, something you're told never to do before you go for a swim, um, he manages to find himself to the upturned lifeboat and lives and tells his tale. I, I mean, like, I don't know. I just think that's maybe where you want to be just like you know it is what it is stuff happens and and kind of just ride it out and see might as well just get drunk words to live by um okay final thoughts on this before we before we go is it as far as i'm concerned the only film about the titanic from now on (laughs) neil um yeah like like i say it was it was good to revisit again um all these years apart um, and yeah, I didn't quite find myself getting as emotional, but it, it kind of just got me, it kind of got me a wee bit philosophically, as you're probably picking up from some of the things I've said, like kind of debating what we're about and what we would do and what the, like that, that, that aspect really came through, uh, for me. And, um, yeah, it's, it's worth, it's worth a watch if, if, it, if anybody's listened to this and hasn't watched it and has seen the, the Cameron, um, version of the story i would yeah i would i would put this over and above that from what little i've seen of it yeah um I, i'm just going to support this this is a rare occasion where i think the three of us are may actually be on the same page oh my goodness all it took was a um, massive human catastrophe <laughs> for that to happen uh like for me i think this is this is brilliant film uh it's not it's not without its visual flaws there are con- uh, there are factual errors within the film um but as rachel's alluded to earlier on some of that is because of our way that we've changed our interpretation and understanding of what happened on at the time um but for me this is an excellent film it's an excellent production and it tells the story in in such a such a, a an economic and efficient and beautiful way and I would challenge you not to feel something by the end of it. I mean, if you don't feel anything about the film, I mean, think about yourself. Um, it is available. Look, you can get it on, on Blu-ray. It's released by Criterion in the US. It's out on... Um, where is it out here? Rank. ITV Studios in the UK. Uh, have it on Blu-ray. Nice shiny Blu-ray. Um, you can probably get it on streaming services too. And there's also Walter Lord's original book, which I thoroughly recommend uh, you picking up. If you've never read any kind of the Titanic, it is quite digestible. It's a very easy read, and I also still find it quite emotional too. Um, Rachel, Neil, thank you so much thank for you. chatting with me again. Oh, thank you. Um, 
Folks at home, if you've enjoyed this, do hit the subscribe button if you don't already. Tell your friends about it. Do follow us on our social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We also have a mailing list. So go on to cinepunk.com, sign up to our mailing list. You'll keep Rachel very happy. You will. Yes, I'll be delighted. And uh, we get we send stuff through. And um, as per usual, just interact with us on social media and catch us again in your ears and eyes very, very soon. Good night. Aren't you glad to see her? Yes, I'm glad. But then I'm still alive. If only she'd been nearer. There are quite a lot of ifs about it, aren't there, Colonel? If we'd been steaming a few knots slower, or if we'd sighted that berg a few seconds earlier, we might not even have struck. If we'd carried enough lifeboats for the size of the ship instead of just enough to meet the regulations, things would have been different again, wouldn't they? I've been in sea since I was a boy. I've been in sail. I've even been shipwrecked before. I know what the sea can do, but this is different. Because we hit an iceberg? No. Because we were so sure. Because even though it's happened, it's still unbelievable. I don't think I'll ever feel sure again about anything.